Content warning. This episode contains gunfire. The possessed body of Ghost of Sunken Dawn explodes in a flash of polychromatic light, instantly filling the room with dust and chunks of the facility. Eichel and Inspiration are vaporised, and I am sent flying backwards towards the back wall of the detainment building. And then, when I subconsciously expect to land against or crash through the wall, I continue to fall. Still surrounded by streaks of multicoloured energy and dust, I begin to sail through the air, falling for a few seconds before I land in a large, algae-filled pond. The water is shallow and does little to cushion my fall, and so I am heavily winded. I drag myself to the edge of the pond, bombarded by falling chunks of concrete and construction plastic, and I lay there, sprawled out, trying my best to catch my breath. I look above me and see a cloud of dust in the sky, slowly sinking downwards to the surface. The two suns beat down above me, the stagnant pond water soaking my thick coat, already starting to evaporate. My visual link is offline, and so I remove it from my eye and toss it away. The floor around me is not covered in grass or mounds of black soil, but is instead carpeted in a complex net of small vines which sprawl outwards. It grows so thick that I can't see the soil beneath it. I roll over and sit up, my body from my torso down still submerged in the pond. The gravity here is much stronger than that of Darjameen, which makes it much harder to move, and the sudden change accentuates the pain in my joints. There's a sharp pain on my back on the left side when I breathe, as well as a constant dull ache. I reach for my spear and find it no longer there. Frantically, I begin to search for it. Getting up from my half-submerged resting place, I see the wide, flat horizon is interrupted in the far distance by huge mesas and equally large sloping hills. Occasionally, a bank will rise out of the terrain, what I assume to be a fallen tree covered in vines and moss protrudes outwards. I begin to search for my weapon, and very suddenly the spear lands and lodges itself in the ground where I was just sitting. I stare at it the blade sunken into the marshy, stinking mud at the edge of the pool of stagnant water. I return it to my side and pick a direction. The march is slow so as not to strain my very obviously broken ribs. Two suns reach the apex in the sky and the heat forces the limited oxygen from the air out of my chest and singes my nostrils when I try to drag it back in. My sleeves are rolled up and my winter coat is tied around my waist. The scorching heat continues to relentlessly beat down upon me. As I get closer to what I previously thought was a dead tree, overgrown with moss and vines, I realise is actually an old starship. A very old starship, sunken downward into the mud, the engines pointing up to the sky. The thing had basically been gutted. Wiring, panels, everything except for the frame and the outer shell had been stripped clean. Clearly the work of some very dedicated scavengers, which meant there were people here. And the fact that whoever did this decided not just to live in it, meant that they took their scrap somewhere. Somewhere I intended to find. The planet is littered with wrecks. Some are small fighters like the Aheadid. Others are huge. Not supercruiser huge, but a few haulers here and there. All of them stripped clean. I guess for whoever lives here, this is the only source of materials and supplies. I continue to walk. I don't stop for a break once in what I estimate to have been a 36-hour journey in the baking heat. The two suns mercifully begin to set, and the moonless night falls on the swamp. In the darkness, it's hard to see. However, I eventually make it to a long, thin luxury yacht. It lays on its side, the left wing pointing straight up, 
so I have to scramble up to enter the dead ship. The pain in my side is too great for me to be able to focus on not focusing and just fall asleep. So instead, I lay back on a window and close my eyes. Throughout the night, I hear a strange wailing and moaning coming from outside. The whole night seems to come to life, as what I can only assume is a horde of many different creatures perform their nightly routine. Through it all, I can faintly hear the sound of what must be a voice. I pull myself up and out of the side door on top of my shelter, wincing as I roll up and onto the mossy carpet that spills across the fallen ship, and jerkily push myself up into a crouching position. I draw my spear, leaving it unextended, for now. There's a culture of Viatorians that name their weapons. Every single knife, bow or firearm gets given a name. The idea being that you'll take care of it better. There's some deep philosophy behind it that I can't properly convey though. The practice later got adopted into the military as a whole later on. I might do the same. Maybe it will make me feel less solitary surrounded by the shrieking night. Hunched down, I look out into the darkness and see nothing. And then, a bump into the side of the ship. Startled, I extend my spear to its full length, refraining from flicking the switch to electrify the blade, and peer over the side of the ship. In the deep night, I can just about discern a shape hugging close to the angled roof of the ship, completely still. Hey! I call out, but it does not respond. It looks like a person swaddled in heaps of dirty cloth, so much that no features can be made out. I slide down the roof of the ship and cautiously approach the figure, spear held in both hands. I hold the spear in one hand and get closer to it. My eyes follow the fabric down to the floor, and I see that behind it is one long, uninterrupted stretch of cloth that sprawls outwards for what must be miles and miles. I circle round, now standing close to the wall as well. I try to peer into the clump of material where I assume a face would be, but see nothing. Just more fabric. I go to touch it, and the instant I make contact, it collapses to the ground, its journey now ending here, with me. I lift up a few rags with the tip of my spear but find nothing. I clamber up and into the ship, and try my best to ignore the pain for the rest of the night. I must have managed to sleep, because instantly it's daytime, the light peering through the vines that cover the windowless gaps in the ceiling. I go to check where the creature had been, but there's no sign of it. No depression in the ground, no mile-long cloth stretching into the horizon to suggest it had gotten up and continued its journey. Nothing. I march for another 14 hours before, in the distance, I spot something. Not a ship or a withering tree. In the shivering heat, and from this distance, it's nothing more than a white blur. But as I draw closer, I see it's the ribcage of some long, dead, long, dead beast. 20 meters in all, with about 13 sets of ribs, arching up into the sky. In between each individual rib are strung up small huts made of scrap metal and animal skins, although from what animal they possibly could have come from is a mystery. As I approach the town, my gate becomes irregular, and my head begins to pound with a heavy thud. The vines writhe and wriggle violently beneath me, and I crouch down to inspect them. They move chaotically, and as I stare, I notice a pattern. Amongst all the chaos, there emerges order and regularity. I hear a woman's voice. Hello, Adam. She says. I stand. Sat in front of the town is a Malgaric woman. She sits on the edge of a wide, flat rock. The sun shines between the ribs, casting half of her shadow. She has a set of metal spheres hovering below each ear and a fan of metal shards splaying outwards from the back of her head. Half delirious from the lack of food and water after walking for what felt like three days in the sun, I wobble slightly in place. 
Might? I ask, my voice trembling with sunstroke and uncertainty. The one and only. She says as I fall unconscious to the floor. Drifting in and out of consciousness, I try to wake up, to move, to do anything. Instead, I struggle to even open my eyes. And when I do, I am met with various images that would normally be strange to me, but in my current state, I am in no place to currently contemplate. I am picked up and carried through the settlement, pointed ends of the ribs arcing inwards like a pale hand closing around me. Something large circles above us, winged, I think. The blazing sun disappears, and I am carried inside a hut. I finally awake, and I'm face to face with some furred, multi-jawed creature. I start and knock over a cup next to me, spilling its contents over the top all in floor. I glance back at the beast. Having regained my senses in panic, I quickly realise it's simply the skin of a multi-jawed creature, patched together with other materials to make up the inside wall of the hut I'm in. A blue glow appears from under the front flaps of the shelter. I'm guessing you're awake? A voice calls from outside. I sit up and cross my legs. Um... Yeah. She opens the left flap and steps through. We look at each other and she kneels by the entrance, her legs crossed at the ankles. Been a while, she says. When was the last time we saw each other? I say nothing. It was definitely after Freywin, right? Or, sorry. She puts her fingers to her mouth in a malgaric physical tick, typical when trying to remember something. Eden. That's what you call it, right? It's been so long since I've actually had a conversation. I still say nothing, and we both sit there in silence for a moment. Look at the two of us, eh? The first Mulgaric and the first human just... sitting here. One of the first, I say bitterly. Or have you forgotten the rest so quickly? She leans back, clearly hurt. Might is one of the first Mulgaric. Dropped from the first mother factory, as mysterious then as it is today. The early Malgaric didn't have facial expressions. They hadn't developed articulated faces for their organic interiors until the last 100 millennia. And so the language developed around gesture and body language, as well as imperceptible, at least to everyone else, fluctuations in the light on their bodies. Her face is a passive expression, the mouth open to allow her voice to escape unmuffled and to intake food and water something else left behind by the Malgaric a long time ago. She leans forward to speak again. The horns are new. I like them. Let's not do this. What do you mean? I'm just saying I like your horns. We could have gotten away with it. We had it in our grasp. We gained the knowledge. And you couldn't bear the consequences of your actions, and so you repented to the gods. You want to talk to me about not being able to accept the consequences? You speak of it like it was a good thing. Even if we hadn't been discovered, and by some miracle we weren't accused of it anyway, Eden still would have collapsed and everyone still would have been destroyed. We weren't meant to have that knowledge. But we would have been free. We would have the understanding of things that even the gods do not know, and we would be free. But you didn't understand, did you? How could you have possibly hoped to understand? She laughs a short, bitter laugh. How naive we were to think that we could comprehend what even the gods could not. If we hadn't been cursed and banished from Eden, what do you think would have happened? You'd have died in some corner somewhere, mourning her death with a head full of knowledge that means nothing to you. It's my turn to lean back now. You don't want to admit it, but it was all for nothing. You were selfish. 
You couldn't bear the thought of something being kept from you and so you sacrificed everything for it on our behalf and you have the audacity to be angry with me. The swamp festers silently around us. All five of us are to blame, I accept that. We all got cursed and banished, but it was you who led us. I lean forward and place my head in my hands. What if... What if we could understand? I say, looking up at her. She pauses and shifts her weight slightly. You're talking about that thing that came out of the sun, right? How did you know? She taps her forehead. Visions. Remember? But I always assumed they were so vague. What was that analogy you used to use about the bird or something? Recently, my visions have become clearer. My last few have made more sense. Before and after, it's perfect clarity. I truly understand it all. And then... I don't anymore, and I can no longer pass the information, and instead it just sits there in my mind. It's like these thoughts don't belong to me. I'm just mimicking the thought process of something much more complex than myself. When did this all start? I think when this creature came through the sun. Do you know what it is? It's from before the beginning, or something like that. It's angry and lost. It doesn't belong. She takes a rag and mops up the spilt water off of the tarpaulin floor. How much do you know about it? I think it spoke to me. She pauses and doesn't look at me. What did it say? It, or he, told me this story about a woman in a savannah, and some cycle in which new rules get placed on the new creations and they simply have to create, and those that do get kept. I'm not really doing it justice. And then he stood up and shouted, I am of Ignadal. I have returned. Rejoice, for you shall soon be unbound. After which he exploded and I ended up here, wherever that is. Mike finishes cleaning up the spilled water and sits up. It's only now I notice the short sword at her side. Adam, my visions, the change in their quality, I think I... Gunfire. We both rise to our feet. Come with me. I follow her outside into the midday sunlight. The spine of whatever creature we're standing in is buried in the earth, but there's a slight defined bump in the ground. I can tell that the creature didn't just die of old age. Some of the upper ribs are snapped, as if the chest had been caved in. All around us are various species of people, dressed in religious clothing, standing outside of their homes, not looking as panicked as I would have expected. Who are all these people? I ask, as I follow might upon serenity through the collection of shelters towards the source of the noise. Mystics, philosophers, sorcerers, pretty much anyone who spends their time thinking instead of doing. We pass a Victorian woman covered in red lines tattooed all over her body. She sits cross-legged outside her shelter. Small rocks and dust sit suspended around her, and a strong red glow shines through her blue eyelids, and a few of the other townspeople try to rouse her from her trance. People practice magic here, then. Vitamin C, thanatology, energy manipulation. Some things I can't properly explain. She says distractedly. We stop at the end of the ribs. Marching towards us from an aggressive-looking four-wheeled vehicle is a trio of humans. One marches forward confidently with her rifle held to her chest, while the other two stay low to the ground as they move, scanning the area for potential threats. The rifle the masked leader carries is like none I've ever seen before. Where one would expect the firing mechanism to be, 
there is instead a series of overlapping rings which spin around a luminescent core that emanates a bright golden light which can be seen even in the daylight. It seems as if it had been constructed, not from the debris found scattered around the planet, but from actual parts designed specifically for this purpose. The two next to her carry electrified rifles, DX-70s if I had to guess. Not new models, but certainly not old ones either. My hand goes to my spear as they draw closer, and I glance over to see that Mike has also placed a palm on the pommel of her short, wide sword. If neither of us were immortal, it would have been a pitiful match-up. They stop about 20 feet away from us. The two next to the ringleader keep their rifles raised, but stand, more relaxed than before. They are dressed in light combat mould, each with a utility belt and long cape. Their gloved hands resting comfortably around the handle and foregrip. Both have short, waist-length capes which wrap around their throats and cover their noses, concealing their faces. The leader is dressed correspondingly, but with a high-collared, much longer, more ornate cloak with bronze trims at the edges. A similarly ornate elbow and knee pads carved in the classical acanthus pattern of intricate swirling leaves. Her small pauldrons affixed to her shoulders are carved in the same way. What is most striking about her, though, as she stands, her rifle illuminating her lightly decorated combat mould, is her lifelike bronze mask that she wears. The billowing metal acanthus leaf pattern arcs up symmetrically around the back of her head, forming a sort of crown. The mask is one of exceptional quality, carved to resemble a human woman. So precise, I can only imagine it was based off of a real person. People of Vesta cry, she calls to the town through an amplifier in her mask. Her voice booms outwards. This is a call to action, one of great import. You have until tomorrow to relinquish your supplies and weapons to us, or we will be forced to take them by force. Some of the more courageous of you may be considering other possibilities. I urge you to reconsider. Such actions are careless and will only result in your demise. Despite there being no eye holes by which I could possibly tell, I feel her stare at me. For a moment I feel so small like an insect under a magnifying glass, soon to be pinned down. In another moment, her gaze drifts off of me, and she calls out again. Any humans among you are welcome to join our ranks. Everyone else. She pauses and makes a gesture. You know what to do. The sound of the swamp is the only thing that breaks the rigid silence. Mike draws her sword and points it towards the masked figure. This town is under the protection of might upon serenity. I don't know who you are or what your whole deal is, and honestly, I don't care. This is a town of philosophers. Whatever treasures you think we hold are intellectual and hold no value to you. Leave. The masked woman tilts her head. Philosophers? Mystics as well, I imagine. A sorcerer or two, I'm sure. Interesting. You think us mere bandits? I assure you, you are quite mistaken. We are the Antronesians, but it is of no relevance to you, Amal Garrick. Just now we are much, much stronger than you, and our wrath is irresistible, in the truest sense of the word. She turns to leave, and as she does, Mike grabs the hilt of her sword with both of her hands and charges towards the masked woman, who turns, calmly raises her rifle, and pulls the trigger. A beam of golden light instantly appears and closes the distance between her and Might, who calls out and collapses to the ground, a large part of the side of her body missing. I rush over to Might, who writhes on the floor in pain. 
The two masked Anthronesians get back in the vehicle. The leader looks at me one last time before she too enters and drives off. I open a pocket on my bandolier and take from it a small vial of an olive green powdery substance. I scoop up some water from a nearby puddle and mix the two into a viscous paste. The vial grows incredibly cold in my hand and I draw a symbol in the paste onto Mike's chest and she goes limp. Already I can see the wound starting to glow as the spell does its job, funneling her life force into the healing of her wound. She is immortal, but this would have killed anyone else. We're resistant, but we are not immune to damage. I struggle to lift her, and the Viatorian woman, who was previously in a deep, meditative state, groggily ambles over and with a slight and precise motion of her hands, lifts Might off of the ground and carries her into the town. I turn from the procession and watch the vehicle disappear into the distance, obscured by the heat haze of the midday sun. Might Upon Serenity, played by Francis Gillard. The Scales of Nemesis, played by Marianne Stanek. Adam Delta 5, writing and sound design, all by Kai Gwilym Pritchard. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Chain of Being. Email us at chainofbeingofficial at gmail.com for inquiries and stuff. Cover art by Kai Gwilym Pritchard. Thanks for listening.